So today, today is Palm Sunday. Yeah, woo! Yeah, that's a pretty a celebratory kind of day on the church calendar. And so we're going to get take a little bit of a, I don't want to say it's a detour away from 1 John, because, you know, we'll hit on some things here and there that are concepts that we have hit in 1 John or we'll touch on in 1 John. But, but taking a little roundabout um, from 1 John and looking at um, Palm Sunday and celebrating Palm Sunday. Now, typically when we celebrate Palm Sunday in the church, we talk about Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on that day and the, the procession that happened and his entrance into the holy city. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about that, but we're going to start off talking about another man in Scripture who went into another city. And we're going to look at both of those men and both of those cities. And so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Jonah going to the city of Nineveh. And that's where we're going to start this morning. So we all know the story of Jonah. Great, great story in Scripture. Kids love it, right? Um, but it's a, it's a pretty crazy story when we really stop and think about what's going on with Jonah. So God, you know the story. God tells his prophet Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh and to prophesy their destruction if they don't turn and repent. And Jonah is basically like, there's no way I'm going to that city and telling those people that message. So Jonah takes a 180, heads the other direction, and runs from this calling on his life as a prophet to bring that word to those people that God spoke to him specifically. As a result, Jonah ends up in the belly of this big fish for three days, and then eventually gets out of the belly of that fish, and then God drags him back to Nineveh, Jonah does what he's supposed to do. He brings this message, repent, or you're going to die, do whatever you need to do, people. I mean, there's not much enthusiasm in Jonah from what we can tell. And, and the, the, the city repents. It's this amazing thing. The city just repents and turns to God. And Jonah's like, woohoo! No, not at all. Jonah is like, I knew God would do that. God in all of his grace and mercy would do that. Of course he would have all these people turn to him. Like, what? I'm so mad that he would do this, right? It's just this bizarre response from Jonah. Um, but, but that's essentially how the book of, that book of prophecy ends, with Jonah's just grumbling and anger and dissatisfaction with God's grace and love and mercy. I want to think about the city of Nineveh a little bit. Now, sometimes it's hard for us to connect. We hear this story and we've heard it so many times. We go, oh, it's a great story and we tell it to our kids and that's good. And we hear about God's grace and his love for Jonah. We hear about God's grace and love for the city of Nineveh. But I don't think it's that strange that Jonah ran from Nineveh. And I think we have a really good modern day example to consider when we think about Jonah. Because usually it's easy to go, bad prophet, duh. Why would you run the other way, Jonah? Why would you not celebrate Jonah when all these people repent? So we're all familiar with ISIS and what's going on in the Middle East and Syria and Iraq. So ISIS has a capital city. It's called Raqqa, R-A-Q-Q-A. I think that's how you pronounce it. So ISIS has this capital in the Middle East, Raqqa, and um, it, it's, it's a brutal place. Now, Syria, it, the Assyrian Empire, which Nineveh was the capital of, was this brutal regime. It was this brutal empire that just swept through what we know now as the Middle East. And just killed people. Put their bodies on poles, burned the bodies, cut off body parts, skinned people. It was brutal. This is the Assyrian Empire, the capital of which, the seat of the power of which was the city of Nineveh. 
They would deport people that they conquered from the land that was their homeland, take them to other, other places and resettle them. This is just, it's, it was hard stuff, just destroying people's lives in every way imaginable. Whether they killed them or not, they still destroyed their lives. Well, the capital city of Raqqa is, is not that unlike what Nineveh would have been hundreds and thousands of years ago. Raqqa, you can see bodies on poles as a reminder of who's in charge in, this, in ISIS's capital. Um, they burn bodies. They kill bodies in horrific ways, which we see these things on the news or hear about these things in the newspaper. Um, they conquer people and force them off of their land to live, whether or not they make them move or the people are forced to move just because of their religious profession and the God that they worship. And so same, same kind of thing happening today in the Middle East. It's very similar. And so we can see this. We can connect to this. So God comes to you and says, Ben, hop a flight to Raqqa, Get yourself in there, walk the length of that city, and tell these people to repent. Okay, yeah, that sounds like a really great idea. First thought, I'm probably going to die. I don't know, Ben, God just told me to say that to you. I don't know what it means, so consider it. Pray about it, Tanya, pray about it. I don't know. I wouldn't want to do that. That's insane. That's a death sentence, right? You do that, you're going to end up on a pole like those other folks over there. Go to the whole city. I'm one person, and I'm going to say this message, and they're going to repent. No. And and even if they would, do I want that? They're, They're evil. They're perpetrating the darkest evil that we see in our world right now. It's hard for me, to be honest with you, to want repentance there. I want judgment. I don't know about you, but I want judgment. The Assyrians in Nineveh worshiped their gods, you know, not the God of Israel. Obviously, the God that is worshipped, you know, in and through the work of ISIS is not the God that we know. So many similarities. So I'm heading to California with Ben, right? I'm not going to the Middle East. I'm heading to California with Ben because I don't even believe that if I went, if God told me that that city would repent. That's what I feel in my heart, to be honest with you. So I can't really blame Jonah for what he did. It, it makes a whole lot of sense that he would run the other direction. And, and to some degree, it makes sense that after he gets drugged back into the mess of it all and goes back to Nineveh, goes through the city, tells them to repent, and they do, they turn to God miraculously, that he's still bitter about it. Like, oh yeah, of course you would do that, God. Of course you give these people a chance. Look at all the horrible things that they've done. Of course you give them a chance. So even his ridiculous response at the end of the book of Jonah, like, hey, figures God, you would do this. You, you, would, you, would, you would save these evil people. I can even kind of relate to that, and I think we all can to a degree. Like, is this fair? Is this just? And yet, I think there's also something in us going like, that would be pretty cool if God did that work. And I think there's a part of us that says we even believe that God could do that work because he's done it. It's in his word. So fast forward from Nineveh in roughly 700, 800 BC to first century Middle East in Jerusalem. Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. 
and he is headed towards the city that's the holy city. It's the seat of God's presence, all right? It's where the temple is. It's where people go to worship him, and Jesus is headed there because it's Passover, and he's headed there with a bunch of other Jews from all over, you know, the world to, to celebrate God's goodness of Passover, of freeing their people from slavery, from the Egyptian slavery. And so they're going there to acknowledge God and his presence, the holy city, the temple. You know, this city is filled with all sorts of religious people who do the things that the temple brings about, the temple business. Um, Sadducees, Pharisees, you know, all these folks who are in the religious order. And Jesus is headed into the city. Um, And it would have been something that he would have done as a boy. Scripture tells us in Luke chapter 2, you know, Jesus, you know, went to Jerusalem for Passover with his parents, and he would have done this. This was part of his life. And here he goes again, right? Here he goes again. It appears that Jerusalem is a very different kind of city than Nineveh, right? I mean, Nineveh was evil, perpetration of evil, the seat of this evil power that was conquering, brutally conquering the Middle East decades before, centuries before. And now Jerusalem, the holy city, the temple, God's presence, the religious stuff going on all over the place. So it appears on the surface and you know, that this is, this is a much better place to be. Um, this is the place of God's presence. But I don't know if it was really much different when it comes down to it, even though the evil may not be as clear and evident. And we're going to look at that in a little bit. Back to Jonah. Jonah goes to Nineveh in roughly the year 760 BC. He gives his prophecy. The people repent. But about 150 years after that, in 612 BC, Nineveh was crushed. God prophesied through the prophet Nahum that Nineveh would be crushed. And we're not going to look at the book of Nahum, but there's a lot of passages in Nahum about Nineveh being crushed because of their iniquity and their sin. So Nineveh repents, and then over the course of the next several generations, they just kind of get back into their old ways. And by 612 BC, um, God uses another evil empire, the Babylonians and several other nations, to come in and conquer the Assyrian Empire. And they're, they're destroyed in 612, 612 BC. And so what's going on here? Jonah goes, says repent, they do. And then it's not that much longer that they're destroyed for their iniquity anyway. And then in Jerusalem, Jesus rides in on this donkey. And the people are celebrating his presence, celebrating the Son of God. Um, and you know some of these, these uh Uh, verses from scripture. This is the holy city, right? The city that is supposed to know God, the city that morally should far surpass the city of Nineveh. And they say, praise God for the son of David, right? Uh, Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise him in the highest heaven, right? This is what the crowds are saying when Jesus rides in and they're waving their palm branches. And then about a week later, it's crucify him, crucify him. We will take responsibility for his death. The people, the masses, we will take responsibility for his death. We and our children. This is, this is just a, a short of a week of time that the swing happens. The son of God, the son of David, praise God, praise him in the highest heavens to crucify him. Cru- hang him on a cross. 
bloody him, drive nails through his hands, we will take that blood onto us. We will be responsible. That curse can fall on us and our children. That's just insane. A city for God and then so quickly against God. And then weeks later, Pentecost rolls around in Jerusalem and the city's turning back to God again. Nineveh, a city clearly against God. Jonah comes and prophesies and then a city for God. And then 150 years later, destroyed because they're not for God anymore. Jerusalem and Nineveh, in this interesting cycle of repentance and falling away and turning towards God and turning away from God. Listen to this. Uh, This is Matthew 12, verse 41. And Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of the day, Sadducees and Pharisees, and he says this, the people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. That's kind of humbling. I mean, we talked about what Nineveh's like and what Jerusalem's like. Iniquity, city of God, holy city, death, destruction in Nineveh. And Jesus says, it will be Nineveh that rises up and judges this generation. Nineveh. I mean, clearly Jesus is making a point here that they need to listen to. Because the teachers of the law are like, whoa, Nineveh? Oh, I don't think so. Look at that city. Um, Clearly did all kinds of evil. Turn to God, but only for a period of time, and then they just get destroyed. And now they're going to judge us. What right do they have to judge us? I was trying to think of an example, something that maybe we could feel the injustice of in that way that the Sadducees and Pharisees felt. And I thought of, what if somebody judged my parenting? What if, what if somebody, a father, who maybe had been um, um, investigated by children and youth or had a situation with their kids where they were abusive or something like that, came and told me, Matt, you've got to shape up. Your parenting is lacking. You're not loving your kids well. I mean, who are you to speak to me? But doesn't God, doesn't God just do that? Doesn't he just make us really hear the message that deeply? I mean, how offensive would that be to me? But it would perk my ears. This is the kind of message that Jesus delivered to that generation of religious leaders. Now, I want to shift away from the cities to look at the men, all right? We looked at the cities of Nineveh and Jerusalem. Now, I want to compare Jonah and Jesus and look at these. Now, a lot of people say that Jonah's life kind of preempted Jesus' life. There's some similarities. There's some shadows in Jonah's life and his ministry that shadow Jesus and kind of pointed towards Jesus. And I just want to hit a few of those. Um, Jonah's mission was to call the Gentile Assyrians of Nineveh to repentance, and acknowledge Yahweh as the source of their salvation. Jesus' mission was to call all mankind, including the Gentiles, into repentance, into covenant with Yahweh. Jonah was willing to sacrifice his life for the salvation of his shipmates. If you remember when he was on the boat and the storm's brewing, he's like, oh, I know it's me, throw me overboard and you guys will survive. And they're like, okay. So they throw him overboard and they survive. Jonah gets swallowed up by the fish, right? Jesus was willing to sacrifice his life for the salvation of the world. Um, Jonah was entombed in the belly of a whale. Jesus was entombed in a tomb, hence the word entombed. Um, Jonah was three days in the belly of the the fish. Jesus, three days in the tomb. Um, On the third day, Jonah comes out. 
on the third day, Jesus comes out of the tomb. Um, after his resurrection, or after his, quote, resurrection from the fish, um, Jonah continued his mission, goes back to Nineveh, preaches. Jesus comes back to life out of the tomb and continues to preach his message. So we see these similarities, but, but they're so different. They're just such different people, right, Jonah and Jesus. And in fact, it may have been God's plan to have Jonah's life point towards Jesus, but, but they were very different men who walked with a very, very different spirit. And we can see this. Here's some other comparisons or contrasts between Jonah and Jesus. So they both have a mission. Where does Jonah go? The opposite direction, right? Where does Jesus go? He follows the mission. He stays on the mission. When Jonah runs from his mission, it's it's a mission that may cause his demise. Going into the city of Nineveh and preaching this message may just have killed him. I would have thought that. I would think that if I went to Raqqa today right? Jesus' mission also will kill him, and he knows that, but he continues to push into it. He continues to walk towards the death that he's being called to. Jonah wrestles with God. Uh, He ends up bitter and angry, as far as we can tell. Jesus wrestled with his father at Gethsemane. Father, if you would will to take this cup away, take this cup away. But, But he doesn't lose that relationship. He says things later on, like, not my will, but yours. Um, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. That intimacy of that relationship never fell apart. Never fell apart. Um, but Jonah, he was just bitter. He was just angry. He separated himself from God. Jonah doesn't want forgiveness for Nineveh. He is flat out not into Nineveh being forgiven for their sins. It's unfair. It's unjust. Um, Jesus is all about extending forgiveness through his death. What does he say on the cross? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Right? Jesus was all about it. He never wavered from that. And then Jonah, Jonah never grieves for Nineveh. He never grieves for the way that this city is living, for the way that this empire is destroying the world around them. But check out how Jesus grieves. Check out how Jesus grieves for Jerusalem. If you want to, we're going to start skipping through some scripture, but if you go to Matthew 23, we're going to start there. Matthew 23, verse 37. Jonah doesn't, doesn't even know how to grieve for Nineveh, just wants him wiped off the face of the earth. Jesus says this. Now, this is during his time in Jerusalem leading to his cross, the last week of his life. He says in Matthew 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones the messengers, which is what Jonah expected when he went to Nineveh. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now, look, your household is abandoned and desolate. For I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus grieves for this city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I yearn to gather you together and protect you. But I don't know if you're going to make it, Jerusalem. You're going to make it if, if, you bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord, right? If you realize who's standing before you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he grieves for this city. So Jonah and Jesus, very different perspectives towards the cities that they were sent very intentionally into to deliver their message. 
just like the cities of Nineveh and Jerusalem went through these repentance cycles of yay God, no God, yes God, no God, we see this with Jonah. So Jonah is this prophet, right? He's God's man. Go take this message to this city. Jonah says, no. All of a sudden it maybe seems like he's not God's man, right? He gets into the belly of this fish and he says this beautiful prayer in Jonah 2 where he calls on the name of the Lord and he thanks God for his salvation. He's back. He's turning towards God. He's facing God. Comes out of the fish, goes to Nineveh, and he's bitter again. Of course you'd do this, God. Of course you'd save these people. Jonah's just back and forth. The prophet, the man of God, he cannot keep his eyes on the Father. He cannot turn towards the Father. And if he does, he so quickly turns away when things just go away that doesn't seem just or fair to him. Jesus, on the other hand, he doesn't go through this cycle. Um, the last week, and like in verses, chapters 21 through 26 in Matthew, it's all like the last week of Jesus' life. We packs in this, the first part of Matthew is like drawn out several chapters on Jesus' early life, and then the last part is like chapters drawn out for just a week because it, this week is so important. It matters. It's focused. And during that time, Jesus is just like, calling on particularly the religious leaders to repent. Read through uh, Matthew 21 to 26. All the messages Jesus brings to the Sadducees and Pharisees to repent, to realize their ways. That, you know, you have this religion, but it doesn't mean anything. You have this set of laws, but it's nothing. It's nothing. So Jesus, Jesus is railing on the religious leaders, but for the sake of their hearts, for the sake of their lives, so that they would choose Repentance. This whole idea of um, repentance that Jonah was in and, and that you and I can definitely relate to. You know, there's moments in our lives when we are facing God and there's moments when we're just like, you know what, God, you're not doing your thing for me right now, so I'm going to look over here because I can't count on you. And then something happens and then we turn back. We're like, oh God, I'm so sorry. I, I, shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have lived this way. I get it now. I get it now. And then you know, something else happens and we're like, oh God, you didn't give me what I wanted or I don't feel right or this relationship or this thing. I don't know. And we, we cycle just like Nineveh did, just like Jerusalem did, and just like Jonah did. Double-fisted. Thanks, Gene. Um, and this n- individual nature of repentance is important because we can beat ourselves up over it. Oh my goodness. God, I'm so sorry, I should have done this, I should have turned, I didn't, I shouldn't have sinned, I shouldn't be worshiping this idol, and I am. And we can go back and forth, and, and we get so focused on the individual nature of repentance that we miss this broader picture that we're part of a, a community. We're part of a church. We're part of a city. We're part of a country. We're part of a world. We're part of a, a universal church that goes beyond Cornerstone and beyond the church in this community to, to churches around the world. And, and God calls cities to repentance. He calls groups of people to repentance. And sometimes we get so focused on our own place with God that we forget what it means corporately. And we live in such a culture that talks that the individual is fine. This rugged individual, this, this is where it is. Protect yourself. Even in Christianity, do your thing. Do your walk with Jesus. Don't bother me with, you know, in my walk with Jesus because it's none of your business anyway. And don't tell me about my sin because you got plenty of sin too. And we lose sight of this corporate nature of repentance. And so, yes, individual repentance, like Jonah cycled through, is great. It's good. We teach it. It's biblical. We need to be walking those ways. We need to be seeing God and turning back to him as an individual. 
but we tend to focus in that place. And the corporate nature of turning to God is very, very real. Um, if you go ahead and open up to Romans 5, verse 12. We're going to hit that, but I want to look in Luke first, but you guys go to Romans. I'm going to go to Luke 18, verse 9. So in Luke 18, before we get to Romans, Luke 18, verse 9, Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. You know, we get to that point where we're like, hey, I'm doing my life. I'm turned towards God. I'm living rightly, but oh, that person over there, what's their problem? What's their deal? Jesus told this story to someone who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Here's the story. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. For I don't cheat, I don't sin, and I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home before God, justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So we can find ourselves in this place of, okay, I'm toward God, but they're not. And thank goodness I'm not like that guy, or I'm not like that lady. Instead of our heart realizing that we're actually connected to that guy or that lady. Like, they matter. They're part of my community. And if I'm just justifying myself being righteous and holy by looking at their sin and saying, thank goodness I'm not like them, then we miss this whole corporate concept of being part of a people that God puts us in. We live as part of a people. So the corporate nature of turning to God. Go to Ro- yeah, Romans 5, Romans 5, verse 12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone. For everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit command of God as Adam did. Now Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who is yet to come. But there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. If that's not corporate, I don't know what is. You might cry foul. Hey, I didn't even have a chance to sin on my own. How is Adam's seed of sin transferred to me? It is. We don't have time to go into it today, but it is. All right? We can talk about it if you want to some other time. So so we're told, Paul tells us, that this sin is corporate. 
It's absolutely corporate. It was corporate from the beginning of all time. And, but you know what? In God's grace, so is life. And so is life abundant. And so is new life in Christ. It's corporate. It's for everyone. It's not just for me to isolate here in my own little world and say, oh, that's for me. And huh, well, too bad for them. No, it's for all of us. And the danger is isolating ourselves and living completely as an individual, separate from the corporate body, from our community, from our country, from the big C church and all the believers around the world and saying, well, at least that's not what I believe because I know I'm going to heaven and they're going to hell. No, it is corporate. And what we do matters corporately. What we do as an individual affects the corporate body. What you do individually affects me as part of the body of Christ together. That's weighty stuff. Go to, uh, go to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. There's strength in the body. There's strength of things being connected together. Individually, things are susceptible to attack. They're susceptible to falling to pieces. But there's strength when weaker things combine together. We don't know if everybody in the city of Nineveh repented, we know there seemed to be a pretty large-scale repentance that happened, but we don't know if everybody repented when Jonah brought his message. Um, But there was enough, at least. Something corporately happened in Nineveh. My guess is not everybody did repent. Jesus, uh, or at the end of Jonah, it says there's 120,000 people in Nineveh, and they're they're all sinners. They're all horrible, right? So I'm guessing not all 120,000 of them repented. But enough did. And I don't know what the threshold was. I don't know what the threshold is. But enough did. Because God is gracious. Genesis 18, verse 23. So God's getting ready to destroy the city of Sodom. Right? And Abraham, Abraham says, uh, Abraham approached God and said, Will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you find 50 righteous people living in their city. Will you still sweep it away and spare it for their sakes? God, there's still 50 people in this city that are looking at you, that have turned towards you. Will you not spare the whole city? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why, you would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Abraham's got some guts, huh? That's, that's huge. And the Lord replied, replied, if I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the entire city for their sake. And then Abraham keeps negotiating with God and he eventually negotiates it down to, if you find 10 righteous people in this city who are turned to you, who are facing you, will you not save it? And God says, yes, I will. Well, the city was destroyed. I mean, it was a city racked with evil and it was eventually destroyed. But God is saying, yes, if I find 10 people who are righteous, who are turning their face to me, who are repentant, then yes, I will save this city. Ten people in a whole city. The corporate power of those ten people to potentially change the course and the life and the transformation of a community. Scripture says, you know, where there's two or three, two or three people gathered in my name that are in agreement, that, you know, I'll be with them. I'll be present among them. Corporate two or three. The corporate matters. It matters. So, what does all this mean for us? We, um, 
we absolutely have responsibility as followers of Christ to pursue a relationship with Jesus, to pursue intimacy with him, to repent of the sin in our life, to turn towards him and say, God, I did this, I did that. I, I turn back to you. I, I want to see God as you see. We have that responsibility for ourselves as individuals. But we also have the responsibility of being part of a corporate body. That individual turning, that individual repentance affects and influences the corporate. And likewise, we as a body of Christ, particularly, this is visible right here, the body of Christ at Cornerstone, corporate repentance among us affects us as individuals. When we worship together, there's something different than worshiping by ourselves. There's something that when I am with you people, and the presence of God is among us, like, I don't want to be anywhere else. I want to be with you. If, if in that moment, everybody disappeared and I was standing here by myself, I fear that the spirit would be gone as well because the corporate nature of what we are and who we are as the body of Christ is powerful. It changes things. When we worship here together on a Sunday morning, our city is changed. Our communities are changed. Our lives are changed. Our families are changed. Our relationships are changed. Because we're here. We're among each other. I don't know how that all works out, but it does. It, it, it works that way. It absolutely happens that way. It also happens that if I come through the door and I have a bad spirit and I'm angry at whatever, the guy that cut me off on the way to church, and I come in here, I can just as easily pass that along to all of you and affect the temperature and the spiritual environment of this room. And so the individual does absolutely matter. It's just that in our culture, we tend to focus on the individual and not the corporate. And so this morning, the, the corporate is the thing that we're really emphasizing because we miss it. We miss it so often. Also, as a corporate body, there is danger in together moving and turning away from God. Um, Deceptive teaching. We're in 1 John, right? We're talking about this teaching that's come upon the people, this Gnosticism that they're starting to believe. And there's clearly a corporate reception of this word that, that the book is, of 1 John is written to come against. You people who are listening to this teaching and starting to live a certain way, be careful. The ship is turning, right? You're turning away from God. You're receiving deceptive teaching. And it's the same way in our culture. I mean, look at the church. Our church, corporately, the Big C Church, it has lost this notion of sanctity of life. The church of God has lost what it means to uphold life that the Creator has given to us, right? So abortion, um, we've lost the sanctity of marriage, we've lost uh, the identity of what it means to just simply be a human being. And the church is starting to go along with this. The church is starting to say, well, you know, <sighs> You know, maybe, maybe abortion isn't really an issue that, you know, we really need to, to think about. Maybe that's okay. Maybe we can be okay with that. Or, or marriage, you know, between a man and a woman, maybe, maybe that's really, I think we can, we can sacrifice that. You know, this teaching is seeping into the church, and our culture is changing, and the church is changing with it corporately. And when that ship starts to turn, it's hard. It's hard to turn it back. And so corporately, we also have to be aware of not getting lost in those shifts away from God, whether that's in the church or in our culture. So we can be deceived as an individual. We can be deceived as a corporate body. 
We can repent as an individual. We can repent as a corporate body. And we need to do both. Um, this morning, I, uh, I felt we needed to walk this out. What does corporate repentance look like? And if you were here on Wednesday night at our Vesper service, we, we prayed through some things that we had received in teaching over the past six weeks. So if you've been a part, Gene, can we get that slide up with those um, idols on it? If you were here for any of the, the Vespers services over the course of the past month and a half, each one talked about an idol that we worship. Um, a destructive, that's destructive for us and for our hearts and our relationship with Christ. And this past Wednesday night, we prayed, we broke up in the six groups, a representative of these six um, idols, and we prayed together. And I want to do that again this morning. And so this is going to be similar to what we did Wednesday, if you were here Wednesday, but it's going to be a little bit different as well. We're going to break up into six, six areas based on where you fall in here. Which one of these is your biggest idol? Is it fear? Do you worship at the idol of fear? Do you worship the idol of independence? I can do it myself. I'm isolated, isolated from people. Do you worship the idol of failure? Not that you want to fail, but you constantly are thinking of your own failure. Is that where your attention is given to failure or the possibility of failure? Do you worship the idol of prophecy? Prophecy is everything. I got a word from the Lord. Prophecy is everything and, and, and hanging everything on that. Do you worship at that idol for the sake of missing Christ and who he is? Lust. What am I after that doesn't belong to me? Do I worship at that idol? Is that idol breaking me? And finally, self-preservation is the one we did this past Wednesday. Do I feel, that doesn't necessarily mean you're isolated from other people, but it means that wherever you are, whether you're with people or you're not with people, that you have control of yourself. You're in charge of what's going around you. You will, make the, you will call the shots. You will preserve yourself. You will not die. You will not die because you're in charge. So all these idols, six of them, and I want to pray through each of these, but we're going to do it in six groups. I don't know if you guys remember, Jay was talking about idol. This is a couple months, uh, a couple years ago, and Jay said, or no, 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 this wasn't Jay. It might have been Andy Crouch on a video. Anyway, Andy Crouch is this Christian leader. I think it was Andy Crouch. So let's hope it is because this has gone on the internet. Um, he said, idols, at first, idols require very little of you. They require very little of you, and they promise everything. Thank you. And in the end, they've taken everything, they require everything, and they've given you nothing in return. Okay, see how that gets flipped? So idols, in the beginning, they require very little, and they promise everything. And at the end... They require everything, and they've given you very little in return. So think about where you, which idol is the idol that you worship at? And we're going to clump together. And this is how we're going to do it. I'm going to say this once because I'm going to forget what I said. So we're going to start in the back corner, and that's fear. I'm going to have you move to this space. This is how we're going to end the service uh, before we worship. Fear, independence in the back, failure over here. Fear, independence, failure. And then from my left to right up front, prophecy, lust, self-preservation. Okay? We have somebody who's designated to pray in each of these areas. So um, I'm going to pray, and then after I pray, we're going to move to that space. 
And then um, whoever I've designated to go to those areas, please go. And that person's just going to, we're not going to talk about these things when we get there. This individual who's going to pray is just going to pray over us. And as a group, as a church, we're going to repent of these idols, believing that we're going to change the spiritual culture that flows through these idols in our, per, in our individual hearts as well as corporately in our body, as well as in our city and in our county, and all the way to the Philippines as we're connected with folks nationally and internationally through Cornerstone. Like what we do and what we repent of corporately together is going to change things spiritually. So we're going to do that. Let's pray, and then we're going to move to those areas. Jesus, we, uh, we receive your truth this morning about repentance and the nature of repentance, particularly how it relates to us as a body connected to one another and connected to you. So Jesus, work in our hearts. Take your spirit and speak truth to our hearts as we move to different places in the sanctuary. And as we receive together both the prayers that are being prayed over us Wherever, whatever section of the sanctuary that we're in, and also the blessing of repentance, God, to the body that this is, and, and a blessing to you, God, to see your people turning to you. And God, we're going to believe that uh, the change is going to happen. We're going to believe that something's going to shift in our lives, in our church, in our city, in our county, in the Philippines. God, because we love you enough to be one body, to be of one mind and one spirit, one baptism, one faith, together. So this isn't about me. It's not about any one person in here. It's about us together. And so there's no shame in that. There's, there's beauty in that. And so God, wherever shame might come into this, we just ask your spirit to cleanse us now. Um, there's no shame. God, as your people come together to repent and to turn towards you. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. So this whole idea, concept, reality of repentance, it doesn't rest in our willpower. It doesn't rest in our strength. It rests in who God is. And God turns our hearts to him, our hearts to him. And so we don't need to go lock ourselves in a room and beat ourselves up and figure it out and will it to happen because we can't. We just heed the call of God and the voice of God in our life. We listen to his truth, no matter where it comes from, through his scriptures, through a friend, through his word, through the spirit. We listen, and listening incorporated into listening is is doing. We don't just hear it, we, we listen, we walk it out. And so that's our prayer of blessing this morning. Oh God, um, God of, um, of this generation, God of generations past, God of, of Cornerstone and the people of Cornerstone, Father, Jesus, Spirit. God, you are no doubt turning our hearts to you. That's what you do. It was the work of Jesus constantly and intensely, and we see it particularly during the last week of his life. God, you're turning our hearts back to you. God, Let our hearts hear your voice. Let our ears hear your voice. Let our spirits hear your voice. And God, give us, impart courage to us to turn and see you. 
God, we're listening. We're open. We are a people listening. We are a people open. We are together. We are your people, Jesus. And we are ready to receive. We love you. We pray this in your name, in your holy name. Amen. Amen.